Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and serves as the head of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And we're on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, courtesy of our friends at the WellMed Charitable Foundation. So, Carol, we're going to be talking in just a couple of moments with Tom spent a lot of time as a reporter at the Express News, but has been a caregiver for his mother. And men as caregivers is a little more rare, but it's increasing in numbers. Well, it is. It used to be very rare because people had very traditional roles. But the more, you know, men lose that uh, man cave status only and start cooking and cleaning and, and caregiving, uh, it's, it is changing. And we see many more men involved in caregiving now. And we'll talk to Tom about what that's been like for him. I want to begin with something that, uh, as, as we talked about last week on Caregiver SOS On Air, the concern about Alzheimer's is number one or number two among all seniors. They think about it. They worry about it. And you've got a list of seven surprising early signs of Alzheimer's. Well, and it's it, actually I'm looking at my list, and, and it's m- different diseases. It's not all Alzheimer's. It's also dementia. Uh, it's like the first one. Uh, something you may not know is if your loved one suddenly starts stealing or be, or doing other law-breaking behaviors, uh, that can be a sign of one of a very bad disorder, the frontotemporal dementia, FTD. We've talked about it on the past. In the past, it affects younger people, 45 to 65. It is a form of dementia. It is not reversible. And people, because it, it attacks executive function, will start stealing, lying, cheating, all kinds of things when they have been just lovely people and up it to this point. turns out if it's misdiagnosed and they treat it with some of the Alzheimer's medications, it exacerbates the yes, issue. Yes, it can actually accelerate the yes. decline. So that's bad. So worry, FTD, you don't want it. You, you want yeah. So if somebody starts breaking the law and they've never done this in their whole life and seems like their personality is changing, uh, do get it checked out. Second one is frequent falling. So if you have someone who's a little bit younger, not old, we're talking in their 50s, and they seem to fall often, that can be the sign of an early onset dementia. Really? Uh, Yes, really. Because gait is affected. Because gait is affected, and there are studies that link falling to early onset Alzheimer's. It could also be something else. Um, some could other disordered. Yeah, it could be medication. It could be something mm. else in your ear. But if somebody starts falling a lot and they're not very old and there doesn't seem to be a reason for it, do get it checked out. Um, forgetting the function of objects. So we all laugh and say, oh, I couldn't remember where I put my car keys. But if you don't know what the car keys do, that's a problem. So if suddenly, um, I'll give you an example, a relative of mine using the remote as a telephone. Hard to get good reception that way. Yeah, and it's a very short conversation, too. Oh. So when they, when somebody doesn't know the function of an object, that can be a sign that something is wrong. Eating inappropriate things, like oh. things that aren't edible, really? is inappropriate. Yes. If you have somebody that, you know, before there's any other signs of Alzheimer's, um, 
If they start eating something, you know, having some strange eating habits, you notice them trying to eat paper maybe. These are all the behaviors of two-year-olds, you know. Well, yes. Well, I see this is. every day. It is. It is. Um, so that's another one. Uh, inability to recognize sarcasm. Okay, so some of us, uh, probably all of us at some point, hear a sarcastic remark and it goes right over our head. <laughs> we didn't catch that. But uh, again, FTD, uh, the frontotemporal lobal disorder uh, it keeps you from you can't tell what sarcasm is you have no idea you know the the meaning of the uh, the intention of the emotion behind occasionally my wife will use sarcasm on the kids and then she'll say you know sarcasm is wasted on toddlers because they don't get it because they don't get it yeah see um and then the last one if you've never if someone's never had depression they get around the age of 50 and they suddenly have depression there could be a reason they have the depression, but that can also be an indication there are links to depression and Alzheimer's. So a, 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 an onset of heavy depression, clinical depression late in life can be an indicator that Alzheimer's is behind it. Any depression, you want to get it treated. There are studies that show when the all of the endorphins that are not released because of the depression, the chemical balance of your brain can stay permanently in, in that state, and it increases your risk of wow. Alzheimer's if you are depressed all the time. So if you're a younger person, you're a caregiver, or you're someone who's older, if you have depression, you need to get it checked out. And remember, denial is not a river in Egypt. Deny- get it checked out. Get it checked out. And, and life is, is too short as it is to live with depression. Except a lot of us who may fear dementia uh, don't want it checked out. You don't want to know. Well, you don't want to know. And, and well, you know, I respect people who would really... <laughs> Rather, ignorance is bliss. We all have our choices, you know, and if somebody doesn't want to know, but it might be something that you can treat and you can feel better, and wouldn't it that be much better yes. than just assuming you have dementia? Now, this segues into long-term care, the need for long-term care, and yet you've got a warning for folks, don't sign away all your rights when it comes to long-term care, what does that mean? Well, this was an interesting um, blog article out of nextavenue.org, which is a wonderful website that PBS has, so nextavenue.org. And it was from a caregiver who put his dad in a nursing home, and he signed, with all of the entrance papers, he signed a, a binding arbitration um, piece of paper that didn't that took away his ability to go to court if something didn't go well. Well, and in his case, things didn't go well from the very onset. They didn't give his father enough water, and within four months, his father had died of dehydration. Wow, dead. Um, and, And he couldn't go to court on that. And so there are a lot of facilities that will ask you among the papers to sign an arbitration agreement that gives you, that forces you to use arbitration instead of the courts. But what you may not know is that is voluntary. You do not have to sign away your right to go to court. Um, and if you would talk to this caregiver at the end of the blog, he just said, you know, you don't want to sign it without talking to your lawyer. So when you're signing all those papers to put somebody into a facility, you may want to have a lawyer look wow. over them, see, know what you're signing. Um, and he would tell you that if they require you to sign or they, they're, you know, pressuring you to sign the, ar- the, the arbitration agreement, that you pick a different facility. Because why is it that they are so intent upon you signing that agreement? might be a warning sign. There was a long story on NPR on this very topic just the other day because more and more contracts are including an arbitration 
provision. You buy a house these days, there's an arbitration Duration provision. Ag- right. And, they, you know, we're trying to get rid of frivolous lawsuits, but we also don't want to sign away our way for when something very bad happens. And you need to know that's what you're giving up. So it's knowing what your rights are. Uh, I had a government professor in college that always said, you know, we're always one generation away from losing every right we have. Because if you don't know what your rights are, then you're not going to fight for them. So you got to know what your rights are, even in a long-term care facility. One of the issues, speaking of care, that comes up uh, very often is the issue of too much treatment. By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. By the way, all of our shows are available now on iTunes at no cost to you. You can listen to every Caregiver SOS and every one of our Take tens, all available for you, whether you have a MacBook Pro, an iPad, or Android, or a PC, all of them are available through iTunes. And you can, you can sign up to be a subscriber so that you never miss a broadcast. Cool. I like that. I probably should sign up so I can realize That's what right. we've done. Yeah, you can figure out what we said. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that we ought to know that. Too much care. Talk to me about that. Well, another article from Paula Spahn in the um, New York Times, you know, all of us think about, uh, you know, we need, we, we want to get the care that we need. And so the example they gave was a, there was a 77-year-old patient who rigorously controlled his diabetes. He, you know, he took his, his drugs and his insulin, and he kept his blood sugar to a very low 6.5%. And that was a fictitious patient, and in a, in a test, uh, one of the researchers gave those stats to a group of doctors, and almost none of them said, uh, excuse me, but this is a 77-year-old. At 6.5 with a low blood sugar, you're actually over-treating his diabetes. His blood sugar is too low. It's bordering on hypoglycemia instead of hyperglycemia, like diabetes. And so what they have found is that it's very difficult to change physician behavior they are so accustomed to fighting for those, you know, to bring the bring blood pressure down. down, to bring the diabetes score down, that when they get it, when they get it to a, a reasonable number for an older person with a, a life expectancy of, you know, three, four, five years, you know, um, there isn't any need to aggressively treat that chronic condition. You know, example they give is somebody in a nursing home who has dementia, who's, you know, bedbound. And they're rigorously giving medication for cholesterol. Uh, that's not the point. That's over-treating. And so uh, when you are visiting with your physician, uh, just be aware that people, their, physio- their physiological changes when we age and the, di- the new rules for diabetes scores and blood pressure scores, they've eased up. And wouldn't you like to have that bowl of ice cream? Wouldn't you like to take less medication or have your loved one not be so rigorous in their treatment if it's okay to let go now that they're over 75, that we're not going to just let everything go because it's an old person, but the pendulum has swung too far it the other direction. It brings up a good point for uh, folks who are older. Uh, I happen to be a well-med patient, and one of the reasons I'm a well-med patient is because they are specialists in dealing with older people. So you want to be sure that the doctor you've been going to since you were 30 and 40 is really the doctor you should be seeing when you're 70 and 80. That's right. You may need a geriatrician. You want somebody because what's good for you at age 50 could actually hurt you at age 70. Keep that in mind. And if you want a referral, ask a friend who's older. They may know. Absolutely. So thank you very much. This is Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.
Those of us who are eligible for Medicare know all too well it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations. But now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers brought to you by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options, preventive health care, health topics, government-sponsored Medicare savings programs, and a whole lot more. And there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop, go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare and various other resources. Remember, open enrollment continues through December 7th. Hey, don't do it alone. If you don't understand something, ask for help. It's available at no cost. Call 877-813-3134 for more information about open enrollment and for your appointment at one of seven Medicare Information Centers in San Antonio, 877-813-3134. And you should be lighting up that phone line. They're standing by right now, even though it's a Sunday afternoon. You only have a couple of days before open enrollment ends. December 7th is the date. And according to my calendar, that would be tomorrow. So if you don't understand something, if you want help, call 877-813-3134. WellMed Medicare Information Center professionals are there to take your call. 877-813-3134. The call is free and the service is free. But well, we're delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS hotline a gentleman who uh, I've known for a number of years, a wonderful writer and a reporter, uh, who I didn't know in a capacity that brought him to the Caregiver uh, SOS exposition just the other day, the symposium on caregiving. And Carol Zernio, you were there as well, and you had a chance to meet Tom. Uh, it, it totally uh, took me by surprise to know that uh, here's a guy who's been caring for his mom. Well, and we, been, we've talked about how there are more male caregivers now um, and sons taking care of their moms. That's not an unusual situation. Uh, but it's it's always nice to hear from our caregivers that either come to our conference or listeners here um, on the radio show uh, because you know y- your story is important and other caregivers get to chance to hear that there are other people just like them out there. And for you, Tom, and thank you very much for coming on Caregiver SOS on air. We really appreciate it. Well, why don't you walk us through how you uh, ended up being a, a caregiver? Yes, it's a pleasure to be on the show, Ron. Um, uh, and uh, Carol, by the way, the conference uh, on Friday uh, taught me quite a lot of things. Uh, I learned uh, a lot how to improve uh, some of the things that we're doing. Uh, but that's probably not going to change the gist of uh, what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, the, the way I got involved is that uh, my father passed away in 2006 from prostate cancer and uh, uh, my mother and father uh, maintained uh, dual residences Uh, my mother uh, and father uh, lived for most of their uh, twilight years uh, in a South Texas uh, uh, city and uh, there are plenty of resources uh, in that South Texas city, but uh, for whatever reason, um, I uh, and my sister, we chose to uh, uh, 
try to keep mom in her house for as long as possible. And this was a decision of our mother as well. I can get into, the, into more detail about that later on. Um, but way back in 2006, after my father passed away, my mother had the foresight to immediately uh, make me a signatory uh, to uh, the family checking account. So my name took my father's na- uh, place on the checks. And um, this, she said, uh, was so that uh, if she passed away suddenly, uh, I would be able to uh, pay the bills for the household and uh, also to pay funeral expenses out of the family checking account. She had the foresight to do that. And then uh, later on, um, in uh, early 2013, February of 2013, uh, I was uh, making a uh, routine visit back to the family home. And I was going through the mail, or else I picked the mail up from the the post office box. And I noticed uh, three um, NSF notices uh, non-sufficient fund notices from the bank. Now, that was unusual? Yes, that was unusual uh, for because they, uh, as a couple, uh, um, my mother and father were uh, very business responsible. And um, the funny thing was that uh, when I showed my mom the uh, notices and I told her what they were, she was um, genuinely uh, surprised and horrified um, that she would have made a mistake that would have led to that. Uh, she was a person to always balance her checkbook and stuff like that all the time. And you had said that she but, was she's worldly wise and had lived overseas, so she really was very uh, uh, cultured and aware of the world. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. And... Um, uh, the bottom line was um, the very next day uh, she knew that that was an indication that she was uh, starting to have some um, uh, forgetfulness, um, uh, some problems, and uh, she took me down to the fa- to, to meet the quote-unquote family attorney, and based on uh, his advice and, and based on their discussion, he drew up a uh, general power of attorney for her right then and there to de- designate me as uh, her durable power of attorney. And it was about three pages long, pretty simple document. And any uh, layman that would uh, read it would understand uh, how much power over her life uh, it gave me. And you were comfortable she, with that? Oh, yes. Uh, she... She came up with this idea uh, on her own based on her attorney's advice. And so uh, in that regard, we were very lucky in that we didn't have to um, talk to her about uh, these types of of end-of-life or uh, twilight year uh, decisions that have to be made every once in a while. So that was very fortunate, and uh, so we've been... We've been uh, going along nicely ever since. Um, 
Well, it sounds like that you, I mean, I'm thinking about what we talked about in the conference, and and Carol Birch, who is an elder law attorney here in San Antonio, was talking about getting those documents prepared now, um, and hopefully you have a relationship with uh, your parents where they they feel comfortable going ahead and making you a signatory on the account now, so and, and and power of attorney now, as opposed to a, a springing power of attorney, which would only take effect if she became incapacitated, because it gives the banks and and other people who would read these documents uh, greater faith in the documents than if all of a sudden you wait until somebody is incapacitated. Yeah, about the only mistake that I could point to that uh, we have made is that after my father passed away. We never did have a, um, we, I should say, the the rest of the family, my mother, myself, and my and my younger sister, we never did have a discussion about mo- what mom would do for living arrangements uh, after that point. And that was probably uh, a mistake. But um, mom was, uh, you know, living at the family home. Um, she was able to uh, find... Uh, uh, people to help her with house cleaning and uh, landscaping and maintaining Mm. the house. So um, uh, we just kind of uh, let that uh, continue. Except you wrote, and you wrote a beautiful uh, uh, piece in an email that, you know, (laughs) obviously as a writer, you were able to capture some incredible moments like sitting at a traffic light in a small town in South Texas, you turn to your mother and you say, "Hey, Mom, where would you like to die?" Yeah, that was um, that was a really uh, important question to ask. Uh, I should say that the day after we went to the attorney's office, at that time, my mother was good for about two errands per uh, excursion from the house, and uh, so the very next day, she wanted me to meet her financial advisors. And uh, so we drove off and, and went to that office. And uh, also based on some of uh, um, the attorney's advice and based on uh, the financial advisors uh, uh, laying out the ground rules, uh, my mom at that time also executed, my mom and I together, uh, we executed uh, documents that, um, giving me full access to uh, her uh, financial business affairs in her name. Um, now, at that time, um, she was beginning to wrap her head around the idea or the notion um, that that she'd had in the back of her mind that she was going to move into an assisted living facility, as her older sister and her brother-in-law had done uh, a couple of years before in California. And they were very happy with that arrangement. Um, so um, that was an assisted living facility was something that my mom was already thinking about uh, moving into. And the next errand after visiting the financial advisors was to go look at the, one of these uh, living facilities and, uh, you know, get a tour and, and stuff like that. But um, I could tell that my mom was a little bit uh, uneasy with this prospect. And um, I think the reason was that in the preliminary phone calls that I made, uh, 
she was pretty astounded by the rents for the assisted living facilities. That's a lot um, of they're, money. They're very expensive. Yes, there's no low-income assisted living. No, there is not. There is not. Uh, so um, I could tell that she was uh, a little bit concerned about about this, and so that's where this story comes from that you referred to, Ron. Um, uh, at a stoplight, I just turned to her and straight out asked, Mom, where do you want to die? And uh, she knew that the, the, the question was being asked um, uh, in a straightforward way and uh, that it was a good thing to, to address, a good issue to address. And it was perhaps the first time that she uh, even considered the um, uh, the question. Uh, probably, probably not. But um, in any case, um, it, she was uh, thinking about it very uh, um, thoroughly. And uh, after a long pause, I rephrased the question. I said, "Mom, do you want to die in a nursing home?" or an assisted living facility, or do you want to die in your home? We're going to find out what you said in just a minute. Stay with us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio, talking with Tom. He'd prefer not to have his last name used uh, because a lot of folks will know his mom. And uh, you're telling the story of how you get knee-deep in caregiving, and it— uh, that point at a traffic light, you ask your mom, where do you want to die? We're going to come right back to you in just a couple of moments to uh, get the rest of that conversation. Uh, you also talk about <laughs> some people have a caregiver gene and some people don't. And we're going to find out whether Tom was blessed with that gene. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. By the way, if you want all of our shows, are available on iTunes. You can subscribe as well. So every time we do a show, you'll get a notice and you can listen to that show as well. Uh, we'd love you to listen on the air as well. Sunday afternoons at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. We appreciate you sticking with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. We're having a conversation with Tom, who has been a caregiver for the past several years uh, for his mom, who uh, develops dementia, and uh, before she goes down that slippery slope, he was able to put together, Carol Zernio, a lot of plans that uh, not every caregiver and family have taken care of. Well, I love how his mother was so proactive, um, and that there was trust in the family, and that you know he had he took the chance, even at a stoplight, uh, to ask the question. Where do you want to die? Which is an important question. It's an important question. And, and sometimes we make promises that we can't keep. Um, but, you know, it, to ask the question so at least we know what they're thinking, uh, I, it's very important, and I'm very impressed. What did she say, Tom? Well, um, she did actually say the words, I guess I want to die at home. And... Um, it was sort of sad to hear it put that way, but it was a question that had to be asked. And um, so I basically responded. I said, well, we'll just see if we can make that happen. 
You say it's a and question my, that had to be asked, but Carol, most families don't deal with that question until the very end. Well, it, it is an important question to ask, and we don't ask it because we don't want to make them uncomfortable when actually older people are more comfortable with the thought of death than we are asking them about it. So it's better to, you know, just have the question and you can preface it with, I'm not, you know, not trying to to wish you, in, you know, in your no. grave early, It's but it's important to ask. And then what, I, what you said, Tom, was then you had to figure out a way to make that happen. That's, that's right. I can confirm what you just said, Carol. And uh, I, I think people should be a little bit less uh, worried about bringing that topic up. Um, it is uh, a... Uh, a gut check moment for many families, especially low income families. Uh, but in many respects, um, uh, just depending on the strength of the family, uh, people can be, uh, fully capable of, uh, addressing those large, big questions about life. Um, and I would say that, um, uh, one of the lessons to take away from my experience is that one shouldn't be afraid to openly discuss uh, these quote-unquote delicate issues. Uh, just like you said, Carol, uh, older people, uh, they've been around a while. They themselves possibly have already um, thought about these caregiving questions with their own uh parents. Uh, so um, in our modern society, uh, I think that's not really a, a big taboo. Shouldn't be anyway. No, it, actually, we, you know, it, it used to not be taboo. We keep trying to make it that way, but that's just the modern, you know, people, we used to be much more open about death uh, than we are today. So, so I, so I, I'm curious about this, this idea of a caregiver gene that Ron was mentioning. Yes, um, I, I think it's important for, uh, I, I think a lot of people can probably um, understand what I'm saying when I say that uh, some people have the caregiver gene and some people do not. Uh, a quick way to discover, not a quick way, but uh, a surefire way to discover if you have it is to babysit uh, or take care of a uh, baby or a toddler. A perfect example of this is what do you do when the toddler will not accept a spoonful of, uh, food that you're trying to make, trying to, uh, get them to eat? You've seen that picture, uh, in your mind maybe, uh, uh, dozens of times where the toddler won't accept a spoonful of, uh, Gerber, um, uh, toddler food, baby food. They don't like the taste. They don't like the texture. You don't know what 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 it is, but uh, somehow you've got to get them to eat. And uh, parents come up with uh, a lot of creative ways to get that kid to eat the food. So you so, think if you if you can if you can survive trying to feed a toddler with food they don't like then then you may yeah. be you may be a good candidate for caregiving later on. 
I think it's a, it's a requirement. Uh, it, it's a rite of passage. Uh, anybody who's a parent uh, will know if they have the caregiver gene or not. Wouldn't you agree, uh, Ron? Well, I'm raising toddlers, as you know, Tom. Yeah, and he's picturing and, and that. I in have his to head. tell you, part of the answer to that one is uh, when they won't eat anything. They're older now, and they they really do at 30 months and four years feed themselves. Uh, but it doesn't mean they're going to eat everything. Uh, but when we were spoon feeding them, and it came time uh, for them to do what every kid will do, and Carol was demonstrating, moving her head back and forth and up and down. Uh, you're trying to hit a moving target with that spoon. I would solve it very simply. Gina! <laughs> Gina being my wife. Gina! She Oh, she has the caregiver she's, gene. Well, she's got better, <laughs> she has better technique. Well, and you know, really what I, I would say is, you, know, you were talking about you have to be creative in imagination. And I think for any caregiver, at, for whoever, whatever age the person is that you're caring for, imagination and creativity, you know, we talk about in Alzheimer's, you have to go into their world. You can't drag them into the reality, you know, that is you really do need to be creative and flexible enough and, and willing to let go of the reality, you know, and, and, and just go with it. If a little flexibility, A, Studies show that you live longer that way. You certainly cut down your stress that way. Um, but you can also, it, it makes it more enjoyable for everyone if you can, you know, loosen up a little bit and have some fun while you're trying to do some of those difficult tasks. Uh, Carol, you hit the nail on the head when you said uh, the, t- the words, step into their world. Um, and uh, if I may, I'd like to give a plug to uh, a... Uh, a website and a very creative caregiver in her own in her own right. I believe her the name is uh, Karen Strobe, who uh, came up with the, the term "step into my world," and um, and that's the way I have to consider it whenever I am interacting with uh, my mother or with anybody who uh, has uh, a dementia. Uh, problem or Alzheimer's or any kind of cognitive uh, problem. I think the same would be true uh, for uh, uh, learning disabled. Um, You have to realize when you're interacting with a person like that, that they're not really in your world. And you have to remember that you are, when you're interacting with them, that you are stepping into their world. And, um, um, this uh, person I'm talking about, um, Karen uh, and Monday Strobe, um, uh, they developed uh, a uh, program using uh, the skills that are used in improvisational comedy uh, to interact with people uh, uh, that have uh, dementia-related illnesses. Um, and uh, they have a website called uh, In the Moment dot com and uh that is spelled i n hyphen the moment uh dot com and they have some wonderful uh ideas there about uh interacting uh with uh people that have dementia related illnesses well, and, let me um, ask let me ask you this time because we only have a few minutes left and we could do this uh for a oh, long long time because it's a hours. wonderful story but uh, i'm curious uh, you talk a bit about, in, in the piece you wrote for us, uh, about uh, trying a nursing home, trying 
that environment, and it just didn't work for your mom. No, it certainly didn't. In fact, it was uh, a very uh, concerning experience. Uh, at the time, um, my mom was recovering from a broken hip. She'd fallen in the bathroom, I gather. She fell in the bathroom on a tile floor, and it was a very typical uh, uh, type of uh, accident that elderly people have. Uh, in fact, uh, someone reminded me at the conference that her uh, forgetting her walker at the toilet and walking around uh, in a confused fashion in the bathroom uh, is uh, means that her falling and breaking her hip was related to her dementia. Uh, and so I, I tend to think that that's probably right. Um, but anyway, she was in the hospital, and uh, she was uh, recovering about as well as can be expected. And uh, eventually, though, uh, the uh, amount of time that Medicare will pay for uh, rehabilitation runs out, and at that point, uh, the patient's uh, only alternative is to go into a nursing home, and uh, that was the case for my mother. Uh, The problem is that today, the rules for nursing homes are different than from when uh, you and I were growing up, Ron. Um, uh, I remember going to visit uh, relatives as a elementary age uh, boy and um, they would be in a hospital bed in a nursing home and if they were at risk for falling the bed rails would always be up and of course uh, back back in those days uh, we're talking the uh, 50s and 60s um, the the caregiver the nursing uh, staffs and the caregivers were, uh, I think, um, more numerous. Right. There was probably a, a lower ratio of nurses to patients. Now, you know, they they dictate that. So. All right. We're, we're, we have less than a minute. Uh, so, Tom, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but ultimately you, you find a solution by uh, hiring uh, caretakers what, what at we, home for what her. We, we hired what we call elder sitters, uh, and these are people who – literally uh, stay with the patient uh, for as long as their shift is. And uh, in our case, um, uh, we got a hold of these people because they had cared for the parents of uh, one of my high school classmates. And this is working for you? Yes, this is working wonderfully for us. Uh, We pay them probably as much or more than they would earn if they were uh, working themselves in a nursing home, which is great. Which is great because so many workers are underpaid. It sounds like you've. It sounds like you've reached a, a very good arrangement and for we your gotta, mother. Unfortunately, we have to stop you right there. But I really appreciate your willingness to share this story, and uh, I would encourage you. You wrote a beautiful piece about it. I'd love to see you get that published. Uh, perhaps I could uh, just submit it and see if it, it could go in the caregiver SOS. Oh, we'd love to have it in uh, the signals. Letter. Yes, we would love to have it in the, if with your permission, um, we can run it in the signals and, newsletter. And we'll uh, protect your mom's uh, right. identity. We can change it. So we'll work with you on that. That'd be great. Hey, thanks. Appreciate that. Be, be, be glad to do that. I, I want to be of assistance to all the other 
caregivers out there that are facing this same problem because um, if you are creative, you can overcome uh, some of these obstacles and uh, and reduce the stress as much as uh, you're happy with. Perfect. Got to stop you right there. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernial. 9.30 a.m. The Answer is where you find us. Take 10 is next. Those of us who are eligible for Medicare know all too well it's difficult and confusing to navigate the maze of rules and regulations. But now there's good news. The Medicare Information Centers brought to you by WellMed provide all the information Medicare-eligible people may need on Medicare and Medicare Advantage health plan options, preventive health care, health topics, government-sponsored Medicare savings programs, and a whole lot more. And there's no cost for the service. The Medicare Information Centers by WellMed are your one-stop, go-to resource for everything you need to know about Medicare and various other resources. Remember, open enrollment continues through December 7th. Hey, don't do it alone. If you don't understand something, ask for help. It's available at no cost. Call 877-813-3134 for more information about open enrollment and for your appointment at one of seven Medicare Information Centers in San Antonio, 877-813-3134. I want to remind you that open enrollment ends tomorrow, December 7th, but you still have time and there is help available for you. WellMed caregiver specialists and Medicare Information Center specialists are standing by at 877-813-3134, 877-813-3134. I know it's Sunday afternoon, 6 o'clock, but they are there to help you make a decision that can affect you for an entire year in terms of your health care coverage. Call 877-813-3134. The call is free and the service is free. like this little bumper music. That's cool. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. Take 10 is what you're listening to now at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS programs. We are joined by Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known expert on caregiving and addictions, a psychotherapist, and we want to talk a bit about uh, something, Carol, that really spins out of our topic last week, and that is the family dynamics where uh, dad or mom is sick and one of the spouses becomes a caregiver or one of the kids. Right. Well, I'm just, I was thinking about the changes in, in family dynamics in general. And I, I was particularly thinking about a family of four sisters that we had in our stress busting class where they, um, you know, the four of them were taking care of mom and the oldest one, the one who always did everything, was expected to still do everything. The two middle children were to help out. That was what mom expected. And then the youngest one didn't have to help at all because she was the youngest. She was the hero. She was the golden child. Right. And she wasn't expected to help at all. Um, and so, mm. you know, in that case, that was exactly the way they had been their whole lives. And that played right. out. But that's not always the case. So sometimes we, we take those relationships and we just carry them on. But then sometimes we're forced to take on a new role. But, you know, you know, Carol, this is a age-old issue. I mean, I work with alcoholics and addicts. Family dynamics are, are there's common scenarios in, in all family dynamics. Certainly, nobody can deny that if you have an alcoholic father or mother or even a child in a family, it changes dramatically and quantumly the energy in a family. It affects how the siblings react. It affects how mom deals with dad. It, or it affects if everybody's on the right page. Energy shifts, okay? I mean, healthy families... 
uh, what's the saying? Is it's an old saying? I, I remember. Happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is un- unhappy in its own way. So, it basically says that when something like caregiving hits, and and somebody has issues like neurological issues or, or issues in, in with the with the parents are taking care of, all the attention starts changing. Everything really requires a healthy family system, and that is a, and I'll turn it over to you, but that is why I clearly constantly tell people, get into therapy long before you become a caregiver. Deal with your family issues. Well, and and I'm thinking of another family where there's multiple siblings, and they absolutely, in the, the first example, actually they kind of accepted their roles, they did them, and they pretty much had harmony, a little bit of resentment. But I'm thinking of another family with even more siblings where it's us against them. It's, it's you know, 50-50. Half of them are on one side. You know, we should be taking care of everything, and the other half are we need to respect mom and dad's rights, and they still have competency, and they get to choose. You know, one side wants to be dictators, and the other side just wants to support them. So, you know, what happens when you're at each other's throats? That well, Therein lies a, a wonderful example of why desperately we need to have a clinician in there, a licensed clinician trained in geriatric care, geriatric care manager this is the time when really when families get so out of whack it's almost like a top that you turn and it starts finally slowing down and start falling um when when life is not balanced inside of a of a of a family dealing with elder care you desperately need a facilitator to be able to touch on all the issues to bring that family back into balance and that would be true even if it's just two people if it's like two sisters and we're not getting along yeah, power struggles are between two people or ten people or a hundred people. These power struggles have family of origin roots in them. They probably started at a younger age. Um, you know, burnout of, of one sibling maybe has a lot to do with the way mom or dad felt about the other sibling that they get stuck with. These are all clinical, clinical issues that were born um, during our childhood and so desperately needs a professional who understands that. Well, and this also makes me think about those the conversations that we need to have with our parents while they're still well, because um, a lot of the conflict and unhappiness happens uh, when we get in caregiving situations because we're not in agreement about what happens next. You know, one of us promised mom would never be in a nursing home, and we never really talked to mom about if you get Alzheimer's, you know, require 24-7 care, and, you know, do you really expect us to do that for you? Is that what you want to happen? Because I think most people, if they were, you know, thinking clearly, uh, I, I always tell my son, you know, put me, absolutely, if I have Alzheimer's, he check me in and come visit on Sundays. Well, you told your husband, don't expect me to be around. <laughs> so, you know, but we have to have those conversations with our parents so that we have a clear understanding before bad things happen. You really do, and, and there are a lot of tips for navigating these family dynamics. What you said is right. That is the Carol Zernial ground rules. I remember somebody once saying to, listen, if I don't know your name, please don't come, because that's really not what I, where I want you to be. But a good therapist, especially one that's trained in elder care, can manage the elder care expectations of each person. I also believe that they can set up the... Uh, rules of conversation. They, they they can give the informed consent. They can understand and talk to everybody that we're all adults here. It's no longer the the, the child speaking, um, and and they also can bring out the fears and the vulnerabilities of everybody articulately, so that people can say it out loud and have another family member, if you will, kind of hear you 
and and maybe provide the feedback that you've never gotten any time in your life. Well, do you think that a lot of times these conflicts boil down to either power or money? I mean, at the end of the day, I do, I do. I think it also man- it comes down to one big thing. I think it's managing personal expectations. I think that expectations you've heard me say way too long are the seeds of resentment. And I think that every and it could well be money, and that may be the expectation of one group. It could be attention. That could be an expectation of another person. Um, but there all can be different sort of expectations. And when we have expectations, it ruins what's happening in the moment. It takes us out of it. And I think that's what a good, good facilitator can do is bring us back to the moment. And in doing that, all the parties have to be willing to participate. Well, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and to be frank with you, they do and they don't. Um, and in my addiction world, uh, we would love to have everybody there. We would love to be able to have the loved ones peel themselves away from the addicts or alcoholics and get them into treatment. However, if somebody does that, then we also have a united front that if they're not participating, they're not participating. Often I'll put an empty chair there when the person's not there. Oh, well, that's cool. And then, and yeah, and then we will all you know, see that the person is not there. So they really cannot be there post-time that we collaborate clinically with the family. Uh, it's a symbol, but, um, but yes, Ron, to your point, we would much prefer to have everybody there. Well, there was one word that you used a couple of times when you were talking about the professional, professional that you were calling in, and that was really somebody who has some expertise in working with a geriatric population. Yes. That these yeah. are, there's something about dealing with older people, end-of-life issues that you might want a, a geriatric care manager, a geriatric uh, lawyer, um, that you need someone who has specialized training in geriat- in working with the older people. Absolutely. You're a gerontologist. Carol, you, you head up one of the largest organizations, the NCOA. You get the differences, the cultural differences. It's not, I worked with adolescents for years. I worked with adults for years. There is a true difference that goes into um, boomers and seniors, but especially seniors, in terms of the acceptance of the mortality of life, and also the fears and the anxieties that go along with the chronic and terminal illness. I think, without a doubt, you should vet your therapist and make sure they're very skilled in working with geriatrics and elder care. Well, and probably the and the probably the, the other piece I would say is you're also, if you can, including the parents, the whoever's sick, the older folks, if they have capacity in the conversation as touché. well. We're not going to talk around them. Touche, touche. I think it's vital. Obviously, if there's a clinical issue, you can't do it, but the growth means that the person should be involved and respected. But that, that really does require even more skilled therapists to be able to peel people off of the loved one and so it doesn't become confrontational. This is Take 10 on 930 AM The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel, and we've got about a minute left, Dr. Jamie. Well, I think this is a great topic, and I can't tell you, uh, I think, how important I think it is that the, what resonates and should come out of this type of a Take 10 session is that we can't do this alone, and that when we try to do this alone, that old kill the messenger syndrome will pop up in the New York Minute, that you need a good, skilled, licensed geriatric professional, social worker, or care manager. You need an excellent support group to be there as well. And actually, at the end of the day, Ron and Carol, you need to start this work long before you become a caregiver. Last word, Carol? I would say I agree. Actually, family dynamics are the one place you really do need someone from the outside to come in and help. Stop you right there. Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. By the way, all of our shows are available on iTunes. 
at no cost. Check it out. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. We thank you for listening on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer.